0: I think Tyson uh, mentioned this in the first service, or uh, just a minute ago, but there were other kids in the first service, so we don't just do that for like my kid, you know, so <laughs> my kid gets gifts and <laughs> prayers, and no, we did that for the first service as well, and for, uh, and others were invited. So anyway, hey, I hope everyone's doing well. My name's Scott. It's great to be with you guys. We are in our second week in the Gospel of Mark, and as I mentioned last week, um, we're going to be looking at Mark for quite a while. It's going to be our steady diet as a church. So, we have a staff member on church named John. Uh, he plays the keyboards and he does a lot of things in worship arts and that kind of thing for us. And, John, I told you last week, um, he eats the same thing every single day uh, for lunch and often for. Uh, dinner and believe it or not, for breakfast it's sweet potato chili. So he brings this bowl of sweet potato chili to the office every day. They make it like three three times a week, and uh, it is it has got sweet potatoes. It's got it's got bacon. I hear it's got other forms of meat and all kinds of other stuff. And it's just what he eats. It's his steady diet. And so for the coming months, really better part of a year, if not longer, we're going to be studying the Gospel of Mark together. Occasionally, we can convince. John, to eat something else and go out and get a sandwich or something with us, but it's rare, and so that'll be true for us as well. We may uh, take a few weeks of break and, and study something else, a, a brief series and some other thing, but our steady diet as New Valley Church for the next uh, year or more is going to be the Gospel of Mark, and, and you're in week two today, so welcome to the Gospel of Mark. Turn with me in your Bible or in the bulletin or read it up here, uh, the Gospel of Mark Really, verses 1 through uh, 15, but mainly we're looking at this morning, 4 uh, through 13. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you're my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was, uh, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now... After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. We're studying the gospel of Mark uh, in order to have an authentic encounter of the risen Jesus. So um, nothing like the gospels uh, takes us most directly to Jesus, obviously, and, and the rest Uh, of the Bible points us to Jesus, even the Old Testament. But the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are literally his words. And Mark so succinctly gives us his words. And so it is our desire as a church and as your pastors and elders and leaders of this church, we want to have an encounter. We want us as a community to be encountering the risen Christ. How do we do that? We do that through, like John the Baptist, submitting ourselves to the authority of Jesus, the Messiah. And if you notice the humility of John and how he says, I must decrease, Jesus must increase, even though people were mistaking him for the Messiah and he came in the form of a prophet... People were looking to him for power and authority and so forth and even thought he may be the Messiah. But he constantly points others to Jesus saying, I'm not worthy even to untie this man's sandals. And and such humility, resting under his authority. This is what we believers in Jesus Christ need desperately. It's to rest under the authority of God's word in order to have a real relationship with him. We are so tempted... Uh, in, in our lives, and really no matter who you are, to pick and choose parts of the Bible or parts of Jesus' words that you like and keep those, but sort of shelve or ignore other parts of the Bible that you don't like or that you don't agree with. And that's not just a them issue, okay? This is also an us issue. If you're more conservative politically or theologically, or whatever, you're, you're very tempted to say liberals and progressives, they do that. They pick and choose what parts of the Bible uh, that they like. And, and you're actually right. They do that. But uh, if you're liberal you probably or progressive, you probably have a tendency to look at, to conservatives and say they do the same thing. And you're also right. The truth is no matter where you are in our culture or in this day and age, we are all, and some of us are just perfectly aligned in the middle, seeing all wisdom, right? All of us are picking and choosing what we will sort of, yes, I like this part of the Bible. No, I don't like that. I will either ignore it, and maybe you say to yourself, I would never do that overtly, but in our hearts, don't we, don't we do that? Parts of the Bible that are just too hard to, to accept, and we, we deny that if you want a relationship with God, you've got to let God speak to you, and you've got to listen. Otherwise, aren't we just making a Jesus in our own image? If we're choosing, I'll believe this, I will ignore this, aren't we just creating a Jesus in our own image, which is not the real Messiah at all. It's, it's an idol. It's a, it's a God made in our own image, and it's, that's not the living God. The living Lord, the King of kings and Lord of lords, wants to speak to, to us, invites us into relationship with him. And so today we're going to look at three things from the text uh, directly from the narrative of Mark. And it's this. It's the baptism of John, the baptism of Jesus, and the temptation of Jesus. The baptism of John, Jesus, and the temptation of Jesus. First of all, and where we'll spend the most of our time this morning, is the baptism of John. Mark, in verses 2 through 3, is quoting the uh, prophet Isaiah And pointing us to say, John is the fulfillment of these prophecies. And and, and it's not only from Isaiah. Actually, he's pulling from other parts of the Old Testament as well. But he's pointing and saying, John the Baptist is the fulfillment of these prophecies. He is the messenger. He is the one who prepares the way of the Lord and is the voice crying in the wilderness. And four different times... um, the word wilderness is referenced in chapter one of the Gospel of Mark. We spent a lot of time talking about that last week. The wilderness, the wilderness. Four times he mentions it. The wilderness is a place of isolation. It's a place of desolation, right? It's like the desert. Spiritually speaking, it's where we are stripped of all of our natural resources and where we are forced to see what God, uh, who he is, and that we're utterly dependent upon him the the wilderness Israel meets God in the wilderness Jesus today we see will be driven into the wilderness John the Baptist is preaching and baptizing in the wilderness it's where we're stripped of all of our natural resources where we have to see that we are utterly dependent upon God some of you right now are in the wilderness you go through the mourning and the death of a loved one you're in the wilderness man You go through uh, having your, your job taken or a loved one taken or your own health taken. You're in the wilderness. And when you're in the wilderness and you're going through a trial and tribulation at that level, God meets you in an intimate way. God shows up in intimacy and beauty in ways that he might not otherwise do. After a deafening silence from God for hundreds of years, Israel is now receiving another prophet. And that was true. So the Old Testament... Uh, after the Old Testament prophets spoke, there was silence for hundreds of years. God was silent, not speaking to the people of God. And now John the Baptist goes to the river of Jordan and like a prophet, like the prophet Elijah, he's got uh, funny clothes that he's wearing. He's eating weird stuff, not unlike our John here, John, the New Valley John. And and, and he's eating strange things, he's doing strange things, and, and he's acting like the prophet Elijah. Some people even think he's the reincarnation of the prophet Elijah, and he is calling Israel to be baptized in the River Jordan. And it's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. And the word repentance in the New Testament uh, is metanoia, and it means to have a change of mind, to change your mind from your selfish. Rebellious ways towards God and to have the mind of God, to to stop saying, I will pick and choose uh, what I will want to believe about God's word, but I will rest like John the Baptist under the word of God. Another way to describe it is a 180. So he is calling Israel to repent, he's calling Israel to have a change of mind. And as God's chosen people, it was easy for them to become complacent and to say, We're God's people. But John calls them to humility. He calls the people of God to repentance of their sins. And that's utterly appropriate in light of the fact that the Messiah has come in fullness. Mark says the whole country of Judea and Jerusalem was coming out to John To be baptized. And that doesn't mean that literally all of Israel left their hometown and came uh, to be baptized by John. But what it does mean is that people from far and wide throughout Israel are coming to John at the river. They're hearing his voice. They're responding in repentance to his preaching. And they are they're looking to the Messiah. They're waiting for the, the Messiah. And this is significant and it's humbling because the Jews had seen baptism before. This is not some brand new thing. In fact, in order for a Gentile to become an Israelite, if they wanted to convert to the Hebrew faith, what they would have to do is begin with repentance and then they would be baptized for the cleansing of their sins. Of course, then they would also be circumcised if they were a male to be included into Judaism. And so Israel was used to seeing people have to be baptized, but it wasn't Israel that was being baptized. They'd seen baptism. They themselves had never been called to baptism. That was for sinners. That was for outsiders. That was for them, not for us. But now John says, no, you repent of the forgiveness, the need of the forgiveness of your sins. You change your mind. You come to God. It was tempting for Israel to point the finger to the Gentiles and to say, they need to repent. They need to repent. I got an email not too long ago about whether our church is willing to preach what the Bible teaches on hard subjects, even if it offends worldly people. And I thought long and hard about how to to respond uh, to that, and I knew the first part was easy. Yes, we We preach the whole counsel of God's word as as best we can. No one does it perfectly. And we don't shy away from teaching hard subjects that the Bible teaches. But the next part is this, even if it offends worldly people. And what I said was, yes, even if it offends worldly people, but we found is if you preach the whole Bible, what happens is a whole manner of people tend to be offended. If we're truly faithful to teaching the Bible, worldly people are going to be offended, but sometimes worldliness I find more in the mirror than I do outside my window. Amen? I often find more worldliness in my mirror than I do in looking outside my window. And so yes, worldly people get offended, people like me. If I am listening to God's word, if we are responding to God's word, guess what? Republicans are going to be offended. If, if we listen and, res- because you know what, the Bible says things about justice for the poor and loving the poor and serving your neighbor and so forth. But you know what? If you're really listening to God's word, Democrats are gonna get offended. And, and liberals and progressives and conservatives. In fact, everyone on this, we've been talking about this day if you really are gonna listen and, and sit under the word of God, we are going to be rubbed the wrong way. Because none of us, none of us, is adhering to the word of God in perfection. In 2nd Chronicles 7:14 it says this. God is calling the Old Testament people to repent. He says this, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, if if who, church, if my people who are called by my name will do what? Come on. Humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. We have a tendency, friends, in the church and outside the church, just being humans, we have a tendency to say, if you will repent, the land will be healed. If they will repent, the land will be healed. My tribe's good. We got this. We're good. You need to repent. How does that work in marriage? You know how to heal my marriage, Becky, <laughs> if you repent. If you want this marriage healed, you repent. You change. You have a change of mind. Will that work? Help me, class. Is that going to work? No, that's not going to work. In marriage, Like if, if, you're, if there's brokenness, what happens is you both need to own your stuff. You both need to repent. There needs to be humility on both sides. There's no way forward if one of the parties is saying, this is a you issue. If we have any hope, any, I don't know if you've noticed, but our culture is divided. <laughs> How, wh- what is the way forward for, for us? Part of the way forward, I believe, is that God's people have got to get beyond pointing the finger outside the window and start looking in the mirror at our own sin and repenting and humbling ourselves of our own sin. Whether that's your own ideology, your own party, your own church, your own heart, whatever it is, start in your own home, in your own house, in your own face, in your own heart and saying, this is where I need to repent. Because when we're constantly pointing out there, if you haven't noticed, we are deemed hypocritical, and I think often rightly. I have had many a conversation with fellow Christians as we talk about the cultural divide and there's a quick, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah try to talk about, yeah, but we need to repent. Yeah, but uh, them. Yeah, but them. But here's the problem with that. We have a tendency. John says, or excuse me, Mark points us to what Jesus said in Matthew, or Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Repent and believe in the gospel for why? The kingdom of God is at hand. Where Jesus the king was, the kingdom was physically present. So as he was here, the kingdom was here very much in fullness, and Jesus promises that the kingdom will continue to come, and when he returns fully and finally, his kingdom will be established. But as the followers of Jesus, we enter the kingdom already, but not completely yet. We know that. We live in the kingdom of this world, but we are now citizens of the kingdom of God. Friends, church, the only way forward... And culture for us as the body of Christ is to find our identity more and more and more rooted not in the kingdoms of this world, but in the kingdom of God. Church, that's, that is our calling. In New Valley, this is what we're about. It is not to find our identity in the kingdoms of this world. Certainly, there's nothing wrong with being a patriot and loving our country and our neighbor. But at the end of the day, we are called to be identified most fully with the kingdom of God, and so that we can serve the kingdoms of this world and demonstrate the beauty and the goodness of God's coming kingdom in Jesus Christ. Mark tells us that all of Judea Judea and Jerusalem were coming to John to be baptized. All of Judea and all of Jerusalem were coming to him to be baptized. And interestingly, last week, another shooting took place in America. And I feel like, in a way, it's just another blip, just another, another violent act, another, and it almost doesn't even feel like an interruption in my day anymore, another murder. But this one caught my attention for a couple reasons. One, it was in a house of worship. Last week in a synagogue in Poway, California, San, that's San Diego, I mean, that's where we go to vacation, right, this is where we've all been, not that far from here. A people like us gathered on a Saturday to have community, to worship, to teach, to have a meal together. And right in the middle, imagine as we're gathered right now, is somebody walked in with a gun, right? Because that's what happened not that far from here in a house of worship. A young man, a very young man, walks into a house of worship with a gun and tries to kill the rabbi, but instead is blocked by a very brave woman who loses her life His gun jams, he's not able to kill anyone else, and he leaves. And after reading about this during the week, I read an article in a major news publication that described him as a fervent Christian. That caught my attention. So I read, and I read deeper, and he was a member of an Orthodox Presbyterian church in Poway, California, and that hits close to home. And his father was an elder in that church, and that hits really close to home. And I want to take a moment and just sit under the Word of God for a moment as a people, because I can't imagine how this synagogue is feeling just a week and a half, two weeks later, to have such a violent act. I can't imagine how our Jewish neighbors and friends feel. And I can't imagine how that church in California is feeling, as one of their own, did something so evil and so horrible. And I want us to sit under the word of God as it relates to nationalism and racism and hatred and bigotry and just even preferring your own for just a minute. And we don't have to go very far. It starts in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 where God creates all things out of nothing and he he gets to the culmination, the, 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 the end of creation and he creates humanity. He creates Adam and Eve, Adam first, and it's not good that he's alone, so he creates Eve, and, and the two become one flesh. And as he creates them, they are declared what? Good, as everything else in creation was. They're declared good, very good, and it says that they were created in the image of God. Male and female, he created them, and in God's image, he created them. They are the, the father and mother of all of humanity. Yes, they are removed from the garden because of their brokenness and rebellion against God. And then they go and, 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 in a sense, are fulfilling God's admonition to them to be fruitful and to multiply. And as the father and the mother of humanity, they begin to uh, have children. And so it goes. And every race, tribe, tongue, nation, culture has derived from this one family of people that God created and stamped his identity on. And so friends, every nation, tongue, tribe, ethnicity, culture is made of people who are created beautifully, wonderfully in God's image. Diversity is not a result of the fall. It's a part of the beauty of creation and God's majesty and his his wonderful power and creativity. Creation, we shouldn't even have to move beyond that. We're created in the image of God. How could we disdain another human being simply for their race or their ethnicity or their language or their culture? Created in the image of God. Let's move on to Father Abraham in Genesis. Just a few chapters later, God decides in chapter 15, 12, 15 of Genesis to to start a people for himself. So he has to start with one person, he starts with a man named Abraham. Abraham is the first Hebrew. He's the first Jew. He's the father of our faith. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. Let's all praise the Lord, right? I mean, like, he is the founder of our faith. Guess what? It's a Hebrew faith. It's a Jewish faith. He's the beginning of it all. In him is the promise that I'm going to bless the nations through you, Abraham. How does he do that? through Jesus, the Messiah, who was Jewish, a Hebrew. John the Baptist, this prophet that that we're listening to this morning, was a Jew. He was a Hebrew. The disciples that Jesus called to himself were, were Jewish. They were Hebrews. The early church, as Peter, a Hebrew, preached This amazing message, and 2,000, 3,000 people were believed and were baptized in Jerusalem, all Hebrews, all Jews. Early church is Jewish, all the disciples. Until Paul begins to do a missionary work outside of that area, the Christianity is founded upon Jewish people looking to Jesus as Messiah. Now, some people have the evil belief that No, the Jews killed Jesus. This young man, that was a part of his manifesto, that the Jews killed Jesus. I've got some great things to tell you. First of all, of course, some Jewish leaders in that cultural context, in that moment, were a part of those who said crucify him. Yes, that's true. But so were some white European dudes, they were Romans, that also literally crucified him. But at the end of the day, do you know who crucified Jesus Christ? God the Father. It says in John 19, So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me. Me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and to authority to crucify you? Pilate said this to Jesus, and Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Look, if, if Jesus had not died on a cross, we would be dead in our sins. Ultimately, our sin sent Jesus to the cross, and ultimately that passed through the hands of the Father who loved us so much and did not want us to be lost, that he allowed his son to be crucified. It was God's plan, his redemptive plan, that we should be saved. So we should never blame any man. Friends, it's God who saved us through the, the cross. We call the cross Good Friday. Here's the thing, at the end of the day, racism, bigotry, hatred, anti-Semitism is evil. It's of the devil, and it divides us, and there should not be even a hint of it among a follower of Jesus. Not even a hint. And anyone who is fervently committed to nationalism, racism, white nationalism, bigotry, hatred, violence is also never, ever could be described as a fervent Christian. It's impossible. And if that is your heart, if you have given your heart over to bigotry, hatred, violence, evil towards anyone in any particular group because of that, you will never enter the kingdom of God unless you repent and find your hope in Jesus Christ. Hear me. You'll never enter the kingdom of God. And you say, oh, but it's grace. Yes, that's true. But you cannot fervently follow Jesus and give your heart to hatred. God changes us. God calls us. He calls us to repentance and humility. Back to the text. Some people were wondering whether John the Baptist was the Messiah. And in in his response to this, he humbles himself, and he says, one who comes after me is mightier than me. Such humility. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals, he says. I baptize with water, but he baptizes with the Spirit. And Mary Healy is a a theologian and a commentator that I've been reading for this, and she says this, John contrasts his own baptism as an outward sign of repentance with the mightier one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, to baptize or drench, immerse in the spirit evokes the biblical promise that in the last times God would pour out his spirit like water, bringing about the transformation of heart that would finally enable God's people to respond to him and experience his blessings. It's, it's verses like Ezekiel 36 that, that Healy is talking about. And It's beautiful. Listen to what it says. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. This is what the Old Testament was prophesying about what happened when Jesus would come and the Holy Spirit would be poured out and people would have a new heart and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is why this kind of anger and hatred and racism and that kind of thing, just it can't be congruent with the heart that says Jesus is Lord. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Baptism with water was only an outward sign and a foreshadowing or preparation for immersion into the very life that God would give us through the Spirit. Amen. Next, the baptism of Jesus. John has been saying that he is not worthy to even bow before the Messiah. And so imagine how he feels when Jesus comes to him and says, you must baptize me. Imagine that. I mean, and so John's natural response, of course, is you must baptize me. I, I, there's no way I could baptize you. But in the Gospel of Matthew, we read that, that Jesus says, Let it be so, for it is fitting for me to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. Now, John's baptism was one for uh, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. But I ask you, did Jesus need to repent or to have his sins forgiven? No. No. Jesus had no need for forgiveness of sins. He'd committed no sins. He didn't need to repent of sins either. So for him, this is different. So what is at hand when Jesus is being baptized? What's happening? He says, I do this in order to fulfill all Righteousness. And here's what's happening, friends. Like, as Jesus is now stepping into the life of his ministry, he's lived his life for 30 years now, and he is now stepping into his ministry, and he's saying, I now am going to begin to fulfill all righteousness. And it begins with baptism for him, it begins with this act of obedience and stepping forth to be baptized and to identify with sinners like you and me. He is baptized not because he needs to repent of sin, but because he's fulfilling all righteousness on our behalf. And where Adam failed and where Eve failed and where you and I have failed, Jesus will be obedient to fulfill all righteousness so that when you look to him by faith, And the Bible says there is a righteousness that comes by faith apart from the law. This is the righteousness that it's talking about, that you don't get some weird metaphorical righteousness, that God gives you the very righteousness of Jesus. This is what makes you right with God. This is what the doctrine of justification is in the New Testament. It says in Romans 5, verses 18 through 19, this, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that's Adam and Eve's, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, Adam and Eve. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness in order that we might be saved and we might have his righteousness. And as Jesus comes up from the waters of baptism, God, the Holy Spirit falls upon him, descends upon him, and then the, the Father says this, "You are my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. This is so beautiful. This is the Trinity, right? The Son is coming to be baptized. The Spirit is descending upon him. and the Father says, "You are my beloved Son." And the New Testament teaches us so beautifully that if you're in Christ, if you have put your hope in him, you are now a son of God. You are now a daughter of God. Sonship is stamped upon you. And so as these words come out of the father's mouth to the son, they're true of you as well because of what Jesus has done for us. Just this week, um, as my son Carter finished his last high school baseball game, and Becky and I have been watching him play baseball since he was about four, Uh, and to see him complete his very last baseball game, which means they lost, right, or they would still be in the playoffs. And I went up to him with tears in my eyes and just put my arms around his shoulders and looked him in the face and just said, I am so proud of you, my son. And while I didn't say, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, (laughs) Preachers do that kind of thing. I, I, it was the essence of it. Like, I, I love you. I'm proud of you. You're my son. And later that week, I had another opportunity to do that with my other son that's still living in our home. And, and just say, I love you. I'm profoundly proud of you. You're my beloved son. And if that's true of me, a broken, fallen sinner of a father like me, friends, don't doubt the father's love to you in Jesus Christ. If me, a broken, fallen sinner, can love a son this much, so profoundly, that I can't even begin to describe the words of love that I have for my sons, how much more true is it of the Father's love towards us in Jesus? We are his sons, we are his daughters, and you say, but it could never be true. I'm a sinner. Scott, you don't know how much I've failed, God. You don't know what goes on my heart. You don't know what I do. You don't don't know what I've done. Listen to the gospel. You are saved by the Son's record. You are saved by the righteousness that he is fulfilling, that he is fulfilling, that he must fulfill all righteousness. Thirdly, Jesus, we now see him tempted. And one of the reasons that I love the Bible and I trust the Bible is how real it is. Jesus is Is baptized. He he receives the blessing of God, the benediction of the Father. And immediately after that, after the Spirit comes upon him and the Father says, you're my beloved son, it says in Mark, then immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness where there were wild animals and he was tempted for 40 days. Forty days, forty—the number forty—throughout uh, the Bible is used constantly. It's used 146 times in Scripture, and it's a—it's a symbol of testing and trial. Think of the forty years in wilderness and and that kind of thing. So it's like is, Jesus, just as Israel was tested and trial, Jesus is driven to the wilderness and is tested, and he is tried, and he is tempted, and yet he never fails the test. He meets evil face to face. And unlike our unfaithfulness in times of testing, Jesus is obedient to the Father. He is the obedient Son, and He meets the evil one face to face and yet is without sin. He is our righteousness. It's one of the reasons I love the Bible. It's one of the reasons I love Jesus so much, and and I believe that it's the good news of God. It's the gospel. We do not have a Savior that is far from our suffering, our difficulty, our trials, our testing. He has been tempted Hebrews tells us in every type of way that we have been tempted and tested. If not the exact same way, every every type of way that men and women have been tested and tried and tempted. Jesus was. And yet he was without sin. He knows the pull of the evil one. He knows what it's like to meet evil face to face. He knows what it is to be scorned and to face the wild animals in the desert. And he has passed the test. He is our good Savior. Friends, I'm so looking forward to going on this journey with you through the the gospel of Mark as we seek his face, as we seek to listen to him. And friends, would you open your heart, humble your heart, to look at the ways that you need to repent, that we need to repent, that we need a different mind, a change of mind and a change of heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your glorious son, Jesus, who is our Redeemer, our Savior, and our friend. Father, would you help us to hear his words and, like John, humble ourselves before him, realizing that he is the Mighty One, and though we are not fit to untie his sandal, you have invited us into your very life. Let us humble ourselves before you. Let us hear from you and shape our lives around your word and not our own. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.